Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from political scandals to love affairs, the battles waged and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different ancient authors and comparing their accounts. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. And this is a special episode because we are talking to someone extremely exciting, Dr. G. Dare I say, scintillating. (laughs) I think you should say scintillating. Yeah. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Emma Southern back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. I always feel extra special when I get invited back, like I didn't do something monstrous (laughs) last time. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So... Dr. Emma South, and for those of you who haven't caused our previous episodes, is one of our favourite guests for three reasons. Number one, she likes RuPaul's Drag Race and therefore will understand my random references to it, unlike Dr. G. (laughs) Number two, she likes women in history. And number three, she shares our outlook on the ancient Romans, which is that they are unintentionally hilarious and weird. (laughs) Now, to be a bit more specific... Dr. Southern is a renowned smarty pants, and here's why. Aside from the obvious title before her name, she is the co-host of the history comedy podcast, History is Sexy, along with our Kiwi cousin, Janina Mathewson. She's also the author of some of our favourite history books, including Agrippina, Empress Exile Hustler, Whore, Autobiography, sorry, a biography of the most extraordinary woman in the Roman world and a fatal thing happened on the way to the forum. However, we have already had the pleasure of talking to her about these books and today we get to talk to her about another exciting volume that has just been released, A History of the Roman Empire in 21 Women, How Women Transformed the Empire. Yay! Yay. You make it sound so impressive. (laughs) Well, I will say this. You don't like a short title. (laughs) I don't like a short title. And you'd think I'd learn, um, but that people struggle to remember short titles. But but yeah, I don't know. They end up being really long. In America, this book is called A Rome of One's Own which is snappier. Ah, nice. I do like that as well. I saw that on Amazon and I was like, oh, that is sweet. I I enjoy the pun. It's, yeah. (laughs) I have friends who are much better at puns than I am and they come up with these great puns and then I'm like, right, well, that's my title. Thank you. (laughs) Now, you cover a staggering array of women in this book. And I have to say up front, we're not going to talk about the regal period at all because quite frankly... We can't talk about it anymore. (laughs) You've talked about it so much. Yeah. (laughs) The only thing I will say is I think in a second edition, you're going to have to amend your chapter on Tanaquil where you say that there are no popular histories that mention Tanaquil. (laughs) Yes, that's true because you have now finally written one. Um, We both have. We both have. Yeah. Yeah. But it is 
I don't know. It was just so like I went through as many as I could find, like all of the like books of like a history of the Roman Empire and like um, that I have kind of lying around in my house and flick through the ones I could see, and they just skip right over her. I mean, I they skip over the regnal period like a lot, like the whole the kings are just kind of coughed over fairly often, but still, I was like. This is such a good story. <laughs> like, I know, I know. It's why crazy. would you not want to like go out of your way to include this? So yeah, so second edition, paperback edition will have a specific reference to special <laughs> historians. Yeah, thank you very much. So we, we feel okay now. We can calm down and talk about your book. <laughs> okay, the interview can happen. I yeah, do deep breathing. Yeah, <laughs> when I finally, because your book came out just before mine, like a couple of months, and when mine had already gone off, like, and I wasn't allowed to change it anymore. And I was like, no, <laughs> I could, wow. I we could have done this with this so much. <laughs> um, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. So everybody oh, should buy thank it. You. Oh, thank you. Well, we, we definitely felt that way about your book. And so we'd love to ask you some general questions to start off with about the style of your book. Yeah. So your last book was about murder in ancient Rome. Why did you decide to, you know, change tack and go for a history of Rome using the lives of women as your next project? It's um, partly spite um, because... (laughs) (laughs) So my other thing that I do during my days is I work in a bookshop um, Mm. and you will have noticed, it's impossible not to have noticed at the moment that there is a bin in the past two years-ish, like a really big spike in interest in Greek goddesses, um, like retellings of Greek myth, specifically like retellings of female stories in Greek myth, which is great for, you know, ancient history in general, kind of. But also, as you will know, when you're a Roman historian, you um, think that Romans are the best. Because they are. Because <laughs> they are. Um, and it's constant, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess the Greeks are fine, but Romans are better because they're funnier. So uh, I kind of, out of spite, wanted to be like, yeah, but Roman women exist too, and they're better because they're real, and they don't, like, turn into spiders, or, like, they're not goddesses. They're, they're better. So that makes them better. And so a 50% out of spite that I wanted people to also be reading about Romans. <laughs> Um, and to know that Romans are better than Greeks and 50% because I it just feel like so much of like popular Roman history is talking about men and like the the standard narrative of Roman history of the story of the story of Roman history is so much just war and politics basically which is the sphere of men um, and which women are explicitly excluded from and I thought it would be fun to kind of disrupt that a little bit and be like one there is a history of the Roman Empire that doesn't have any politics in it really um, or has a limited amount of politics and there is a there is a history which is more than just politics. It can also be um, what it is like to live in the Roman Empire at various times as various people. Um, and it's more interesting to tell that story uh, through women than it is through men and to show that women are always kind of around and about. And I realised quite early on into writing it that as kind of a, a historian of my age, I am really only the second generation of historians writing about women in the ancient world. Like my Mm. supervisor for my PhD, who is still working, was like one of the first generation of people to do her PhD on women. Mm. And like people like Amy Richelin, 
uh, and Suzanne Dixon, who are still around and wrote those first books about women in the Roman Empire are like they're still teaching <laughs> um yeah. they're still they're still at conferences like they're still you know they're older but as we all know historians never retire so they're still around they're still yes. alive like they uh, this isn't like an old discipline women in rome or women in the ancient world at all it's very very new and so uh yeah so it's time to bring it to the the popular imagination out of the academy and start talking about it. I think you're doing a great service, uh, (laughs) particularly to readers who have become hooked on ancient Greek myths because there is so much more to the ancient world than just, you know, having your tongue uh, taken out or turning into a monster. or (laughs) And I like it not to be... Like everybody loves the Greek myths and they love them for a reason, but a lot of them are victimized women. And there are, but there are stories which, from a kind of feminist perspective, I have minor issues with, like stories of perpetually victimized women and womanhood as being perpetually victimized. So it's nice to tell stories about ancient women that were not like being turned into spiders or having their tongue taken out or being hurled into the sea or like or have to be literal goddesses in order to be able to do anything yeah and as as we can definitely testify we realized once we started focusing on the early republic that it had literally been years of episodes sometimes before we actually (laughs) mentioned a woman we suddenly realized when a woman would come up as you say in your book like a vestal virgin and we're like god it's been like five years since we've talked about women at all yeah Uh, yeah and it's so easy to fall into that and to be like oh all of the important stories are the ones that the romans thought were important (laughs) but the romans can't be trusted um because they have bad opinions about a lot of stuff (laughs) so true so true and i think this leads nicely into thinking about like how did you come to the decision about which women to focus on because it seems like you've hinted already in some sense it's about availability of evidence but there must be other criteria as well so in that early period a lot of it is availability of evidence up until like (laughs) the late republic (laughs) um because the archaeology is so limited um and you are kind of trapped with texts um particularly for like the the regal period and then the early and middle republic before their epigraphic habit kicked in <laughs> it um it was about who can i find basically and finding stuff for the the very earliest period when they're basically mythical was easier than i thought it would be like those early bits of livy and dionysus falconassus so you've got hercilia and you've got tulia and like there were more women than i thought and so I just included all of them because why not? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's what we were surprised by as well. When we started writing about the kings, we're like, actually, we get it. Like, it's a it's a dynastic situation. No, yeah. It's not, it's, not, it's not a dynastic situation, but it's a family situation. And yeah. so women have more of an opportunity to get sort of, you know, get a bit of soft power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As soon as you have a situation where one person is in charge, you have wives and you have children. Um, yeah. And when you've got children, you've got daughters-in-law and uh, grandchildren. And then you have women who can do things like murder their husbands, marry their brother-in-law, who's also their cousin, murder their father, <laughs> run him over. <laughs> um, as you start. do, as you do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as you do. Um, and can they can do all of this really fun stuff. So that was fun. The... Republican period is harder 
Um, and that was tough work, like just mm. finding women that you can include. <laughs> um, because they only appear at points of crisis. And very often they only get a couple of lines to illustrate how terrible the crisis is. Yeah. But once you get into the empire, like once things really start to kick off evidence wise, so late Republic going into the empire and then coming like the later empire, there's so many women that um, it became a pit of like what story do I want to tell and what women kind of will tell that story so I always wanted it to be not the women who are already included in books so if a woman already had a biography about her um I kind of was like no and that kind of easily cut out all the empresses and I didn't want it to be a Mm. book about politics and to tell the story that we already know so I didn't want it to have you know Livia and Agrippina and all of the kind of big women that we already know about I wanted it to be women that you've probably not really heard of or that tell a story that is more about what it is like to live in the empire than to rule the empire there are some exceptions just because I like the stories like um, <laughs> Julia Mesa and Julia Mamea I include because I just think that Julia Mesa is so cool. That... Oh, like most people wouldn't have heard of them, I don't think. Empresses yeah. or no. Yeah. yeah, they're not women that you have heard of very often. Um, and I wanted people from around the empire. So I wanted to leave Rome at the point when the empire becomes imperial and talk about women from around so um that any time that it was a choice between a woman that was in rome or a woman that was outside of rome <laughs> um i picked somebody who was somewhere else basically just to because i wanted their empire to feel expansive and i basically kind of had a wee timeline almost and wanted it to be so we've got someone from every century we've got someone because people from various different parts of the empire we've got different types of evidence so we've got epigraphic evidence we have archaeological evidence we have texts different types of texts and so if i had people that overlapped i would cut them out so i had at one point um there's a woman in nero's like court who is the keeper of his wardrobe and then when nero is overthrown she goes to egypt and blockades alexandria in an attempt to um basically force rome to put nero back on the throne before he kills himself uh which is a cool story but also it one it's just the story of rome and two it's a it's a political story and it's would be so I chose instead for that period to tell the story of women living on the frontier in England um, and having birthday parties and writing letters to each other which is a story that people don't know everybody already knows that Nero was overthrown so basically when it came down to a choice of like who in this period this kind of like middle of the first century period is the lesser known, more interesting, more expansive story to tell. So that was like the criteria that I had. Fantastic. And I think this, I think you've also hit upon some of the potential challenges that come up with writing a history like this using women, because you obviously that selection criteria allows you to sort of embody the expansiveness of Rome in a way that wouldn't be possible, as you say, if you follow through that sort of imperial line and imperial women. Are there additional challenges that come along with those sorts of choices, though? Uh, Yes. Uh, (laughs) 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 Many. I mean, 
the writing about women is always a challenge because you're so rarely writing about the way them as they present themselves like women are so very rarely given this or their texts don't survive basically and when you do have texts that they wrote like like the like birthday party letters from the from Vindolanda, which are delightful but it is like four sentences <laughs> um and you're like that i mean that's i'm so delighted to have those four sentences but it's not a lot to work from and so um or julia balbia who's like one of my favorites um who is in the court of hadrian and wrote four poems which survived because she very very cleverly had them <laughs> engraved on the bottom of an ancient egyptian statue <laughs> very clever very clever and even better because she was clearly very smart included her name in every single one of them oh so (laughs) she knew somehow she knew and i feel like there must have been something whereby like life as a female poet or like a woman who writes poetry must have already been that annoying thing where people were like do you know you get that thing oh well she didn't really write it like maybe Propertius wrote it and just pretended to be a woman like yeah obviously (laughs) (laughs) that's a thing that men do so she yeah she included like uh, but you get so little and so much of it has to be extrapolation and like trying to add context from external things um which is tough work and it's why people don't do it as much but I think makes for more interesting stories in the end because as it turns out like when you start digging into archaeology much as I find it hilarious to make fun of archaeologists um out of like minor jealousy you know there's so much in archaeology and in epigraphy that you can illuminate the world that they lived in that is just not available in the in the text like Tacitus can only give you so much um and then when you start to look at the archaeology like the archaeology of forts for example when you start to look at it you're like oh wow like life here was completely different to the way that it is presented in the text like it was vibrant and semi-luxurious for some people and like learning that forts were rebuilt every time a different legion turned up so that it was specifically fit that legion like (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) i just need to redecorate this place it's not speaking to me yeah basically (laughs) they'd be like right well the last legion that was here like had like you know eight units of cavalry but we've got 12 so we're just gonna like build on an extra section for that we're not gonna like feel like a lot like now you'd be like well we just cram them in like stick them in um but then no we're gonna knock down the whole thing and rebuild it um and you can see that in the archaeological record and then you can tell how big the legion was that was there is is delightful all the mosaics must go (laughs) yeah exactly like i hate this Uh, (laughs) this does not speak to me i need a medusa Uh, (laughs) yeah exactly a merman who are they kidding (laughs) yeah um also delightful from the vindolanda that's like if you sit down and read them just how much bureaucracy was going on in the roman empire is is Mm. also delightful like goddamn, they love a list (laughs) 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 they're just listing everything Funnily enough, we were just talking about early quaestors and how the Romans wanted them for paperwork. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody needs to do the paperwork and it can't be me because I'm too big and important. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The two things that Romans love, one is beating up other people and the other one is just making lists about it, like just paperwork. (laughs) And it is devastating that we don't have it. 
<laughs> Hilarious. Now, segueing away uh, from just this book, but thinking about your work as a whole, you're obviously an academic, but you have recently been choosing to write for more of a popular audience. And in order to do that effectively, you've adopted quite a distinctive style <laughs> as a historian, which is obviously really resonating with readers. I know that I absolutely adore your books. I read them faster than anything else. Can you talk a little bit about your journey as a historian and how you got here? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've, I've realised this, this year has been 10 years since I like left academia because I left pretty much straight after my PhD. I did a bit of teaching afterwards, but because my department that I did my PhD in got closed down, and it was also the year that I turned 30, and I thought, at the time, academia in the UK looked really terrible, and it's worse now. And I thought, do I want to do eight to 10 years of short-term contracts and working at lots of universities and um my advisor for my phd actually was ray lawrence who's now over there with you in australia <laughs> and he once told me that he worked at five sim universities simultaneously when he graduated his phd and like was teaching and just traveling around the country i thought do i want to do that or am i 30 and i don't <laughs> um and like and it is you know it's nine month contracts it's not having any job security for longer than that nine months it's not it's having to have three part-time jobs on top of it uh, and honestly uh, I was uh, not willing to do that <laughs> much as I'm so tempting I don't understand I know <laughs> um, and also then you have to be writing constantly they brought in the REF. That was the year that they brought in the REF as well. We're here, the Research Excellence Framework, where you have to be writing constantly and trying to get points, basically, literally trying to get points for your research, which is wild. And so I was like, do I, do I want to be writing for points in a culture that is mean? Uh, <laughs> or do I just want to be not doing that? So I was te actually teaching academic writing. Um, is what I went into and I t was teaching mostly people doing vocational things like uh, nurses and engineers and um, allied healthcare professionals like working with them on their writing which really made me a better writer because working on people who don't have any background in writing or a lot of people coming to writing as late career changes and things like that um who find writing to be terrifying and then being like no it's not it's fine it's okay we can do this um, <laughs> made writing more fun for me because it like um broke it down and then i honestly accidentally became a writer for popular audiences because i pitched Agrippina the book to a friend of a friend because he had an open pitching session and he thought it sounded fun and then I wrote the book that I would want to read um, <laughs> because by that time I had been out of academia for like five years and I had a job a full-time job and a life and do not sit down and read like big chunky history books that are 600 pages long that feel like I am being told, like intoned or lectured at. I, so I wrote the book that I would want to be in bed or on the train commuting to my job. Like, what's the book that I want to read? I want to read the book that tells me the story in the most entertaining way. 
And it helps that I find the Romans to be hilariously pompous and <laughs> deluded <laughs> about themselves um, and um, to the disconnect between how the Romans see themselves and how they actually are is inherently very funny to me. And so, yeah, so basically my thing is I love history and I left because academic history sucks, not because I was fed up with like the process of academia. And I, the thing that I love about history is being what my friend calls a time detective. Like you have the evidence and then you're like a little Poirot, like trying to put the evidence together in to make it make sense in some way. And you come up with a little hypothesis and then somebody else goes, oh, that's interesting. What if the hypothesis was this? And then you kind of have a wee chat about it. Um, so I'm just being a time detective in a fun way now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's... That sounds great. And I feel like that's a pretty good description of what Dr. Rad and I do as well. <laughs> and it's like, we hold up our little magnifying yeah. glasses and we gaze very closely at things. We're like, you know what? Wouldn't it be exciting if this was what was happening <laughs> based on what we've seen here? Yeah. And when, when people ask me, how did you get started in history? I always say, Nancy Drew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's basically, um, and I, you know, I don't think that it's a coincidence that I also love mystery novels. <laughs> Like, um, are you saying there's a Venn diagram that could be a circle? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think you would find like, especially people who love like the historiography part of like mm. um, the bit where you're like, oh, cool. Like the story of Lucretia. There's like five different versions, and they're told at different times. And when you put them all together, you realize that they're actually like emphasizing different parts of it, and they're telling a story that speaks to themselves. Uh, <laughs> and actually this is just a fairy story that tells us more about the writer than it does about the actual events and a creepy <laughs> creepy fairy story <laughs> yeah well, as all fairy stories are like have you read Grimm's story <laughs> that's true that's true yeah. yeah but yeah I think that people who like that side and people who like Poirot books are <laughs> there's a significant overlap absolutely all right. Well, let us think about the content of the book for a moment. We want to whet the reader's appetite because everybody is obviously going to listen to this podcast and then immediately go out and purchase your book because, of course, uh, we've both read it and we love it. We're giving it five stars. Um, but I'm interested in, first of all, like before we get into like some of the women that we really enjoyed, which of the women that you've looked at were you less familiar with when you started writing? And if it's not too big an ask, <laughs> do you have a favourite? Um, quite a few of the kind of middle ones. So um, Turia, um, I had only kind of vaguely, like I knew of the Laudatorio Turia, but I'd never really read it. So she is the late Republican woman who is the subject of the biggest um private inscription that we have from the Roman Empire which is very cool um, and Julia Felix who is also my favourite I think I came across so it was um, Sophie Hay Dr Sophie Hay who works at Pompeii who told me about her and she also told Elodie Harper who wrote the Wolf Den trilogy about her so she's in yes. that trilogy as well <laughs> and um, Sophie Hay is doing God's work telling the world about Julia Felix <laughs> and her, her space in Pompeii, like her complex that she runs. Uh, so those were probably the ones, like anybody who came from archaeology 
because my background is text was somebody that um I had a really good time delving into and learning about completely um and being like oh wow you can look at all these women all over the place <laughs> living their lives being brilliant look at them go yeah <laughs> well I have to agree that I had heard of, obviously, quite a few of the women that you've mentioned before, but like you, Dr. G and I are very much text-based people. We don't often don an Indiana Jones outfit and go out into the wild. So, Although maybe we should. We should probably. But uh, Turia was definitely one of the ones that piqued my interest the most, especially coming from a time period that's actually probably one of the better documented ones yeah. in terms of what we've got. But yet I had really not heard very much about Turia. So can you tell us a little bit more about her? Yeah. So she is, she's a clearly a, like she is a woman of senatorial rank, definitely of consular rank. Her husband is a consul and she is, so we know about her from this huge inscription um, that was found in five parts um, when during the like 18th, 19th century, Europeans went all over like putting together the big um, corpus of Latin inscriptions and God bless them for doing it. But uh, they found the four sections they put together. We don't actually know that her name was Turia because there's two bits that are missing and both of them are the bits with the names on. Typical. <laughs> so <laughs> Which feels... Roman history, Jeez. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like like yeah, just emblematic of history? Like we just, we just lost her name. But this inscription was found and it tells... It's written by her husband because she died before him um, and it tells the story of her life um, starting from when they get engaged, basically, um, or at least the bit that we have starts from when she gets engaged. It starts with her family being murdered during <laughs> the war between Caesar and Pompey and her entire family is murdered on the, in their villa by somebody um, and he praises her for single-handedly in the middle of a war identifying and prosecuting the murderers. So she is Miss Marvel. <laughs> she is Miss Marvel. Um, and she successfully prosecutes them, which is, you know, impressive. And then she is subject to a... what. It's kind of fascinating, like little insight. Somebody tries to claim her as part of their gens uh, so that they can take guardianship of her uh, because she's not yet married and her father is now dead so that they can take control of the estate that she has inherited from her murdered family. And she has to go to court and prove basically that she is not part of this gens that she is part of a different gen therefore these people have no claim over her which is a fascinating like thing that must have happened all the time but it's not in any text because obviously that's not interesting but basically her husband says like she just made it so much trouble for them and she just kept fighting it so much that they gave up and went off to find an easier target <laughs> um, amazing um and he is not there to protect her during this time and they're not yet married because he has sided with pompey um, and, is off, <laughs> and is off fighting with Pompey. Um, and then when Pompey dies um, and the war is over, she both sends him money and sends him resources and sends him enslaved people to help him out lest he ever suffer a moment's discomfort. And also personally talks to Caesar to get him 
pardoned basically so that he can come back to Rome so she manages to rescue him from his uh, bad decision of picking, <laughs> picking Pompey he comes back to Rome and immediately joins the wrong side again um, and is on the side of the um, the killers of Julius Caesar, of, uh, Julius Caesar. <laughs> so um, I don't know if she's picked a winner really. <laughs> no, I mean it's really her patience that's the amazing thing <laughs> yeah so he so she immediately throws in his lot with Brutus and Cassius and then during the wars between Octavian and Cassius and Brutus he is fighting with them um, and he goes off again he is then put on the prescriptions list so when the tri- second triumvirate comes in and they are putting together the prescriptions list to kill off lots of people who are considered to be enemies because Octavian and Antony are uh, significantly less lenient than, than Caesar ever was. Uh, he's put on that list, uh, which makes him basically prey. It means that there is anybody can kill him um, and there is a bounty on his head. You get money if you kill him, um, which opens up a whole way that you can talk about what the prescriptions were like and what that period was like in Rome where people were literally just being murdered in the street constantly and lots of terrifying stories this is why we think that she may or may not have been called Turia because there is a story in Appian who has a litany of these stories about uh, a woman who hides her husband in an attic which is also what the woman in the inscription does he says she hid me in an attic her and her sister hid me in an attic and then personally went to octavian and then went to lepidus and begged and begged and begged until they got him off the prescriptions list so she protects him she keeps him or get manages to get him off of the list manages to save him manages to make it so that he can continue living his life um during that period she also they're living in milo's ex-house um the demagogic gang leader gang leader yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um he was exiled um so what well, when milo uh, was exiled for doing a murder he uh his house was sold and they bought it so they were very very rich and moved into it and then milo's um supporters tried to take it back so they literally invade her house while uh, her husband is away uh, and so she fights them off uh, <laughs> with her mother-in-law so she's extremely great during all of this period she saves him multiple times she protects him from his series of um bad decisions and she's also obviously very you know they have optimate sympathies like in every situation they are against the populares so um and she's and they also talk a lot about mixing their property as a romantic act, which is really fascinating because the uh, the story of marriage and women's rights always says that oh elite women stopped doing manus marriage and stopped mixing property, and that is how they got more power. Um, but so they talk a lot about how she they mixed their property and she handed it all over to him and she didn't run it herself as like this really romantic act. So they're obviously like quite a conservative couple and then when things settle down she can he continues to tell her story so you also get this story not only of this woman who is like very politically engaged and politically active but they can't have children it turns out that they try for years and years um and this is a bit where you're like oh wow you're really telling the world everything about your wife but she he says <laughs> like airing it for everyone to read yeah just yeah just putting it on a like two meter high things so she's like she tries everything to have children um and she's like but she can't and so she 
comes to him and says, obviously the point of marriage is to have children and I can't give them to you. Um, And so what I'm going to do, my plan is I propose that we'll get divorced and I'll find you a fertile wife um, so that you can have heirs, you can have children and continue your family name. And I'll stick around and we'll keep our property mixed. So we'll still be like kind of married in a way but you will be able to have children and then I'll be like the third person in your relationship and I'll raise them like a sister-in-law, basically. Is this woman even real? <laughs> oh, I mean, of course she made, is. Goodness. Stand by <laughs> your man was clearly written about her. Yeah. <laughs> they do, and they, it's super sweet because they do really seem to love each other. Like the way he writes about her at the end of like, you know, she like you know, I I don't know how I'm going to live without her. Like she, my life is never going to know happiness again. I'm like so, so heartbroken. Everything is, I should have died first. This isn't fair. Like she was so good and I am so He's rubbish. right about that. He should have died a number of times before <laughs> she did. <laughs> I mean, if it hadn't been for her, he would have died several times. Um, exactly, yeah. But he, um, yeah, but he says, basically he's like absolutely not like i would never dishonor you that way i would never make you like a kind of concubine to me like you're my wife i married you i love you this is no why our marriage is more than just having kids which is again a, a way that you don't see marriage roman marriage especially elite roman marriage written about that much like it's so rarely described as a meeting of hearts or as something that is romantic um and so they yeah, so they stay married for 50 years. Um, they don't have children. Mm. They are aunts and uncles. To She has a sister um, who has children. And so, and then she dies when she's in her 60s and he is bereft and writes this funeral oration and then inscribes it on two meter high monoliths <laughs> and puts them on the Via Appia and there they stay presumably for to his mind forever so that everybody walking along the Via Appia will know how much he loved his wife and how good she was and how she had all of these amazing qualities um, and it's so delightful because it's such a it's so emotional and in the way that they love each other and also in the way that they like they talk about or he talks about her in this such a beautiful way. Um, but she doesn't come across in the way that a lot of women do in epigraphy. Like when you're reading women's stories, when men are writing about them after they've died, very often it's like she was the most chaste woman and all she did was spend her time weaving wool and it, she breastfed her children and she that's how perfect she was. And you're like, okay, so she just had no personality at all. Um, or she like she just wove wool for you and was chaste. Um, but she has such a personality in this that it's um, captivating. It is so... I'm actually exhausted just after having <laughs> listened to that story. I can't even imagine right? what it would be like to live her life. But I kind of wish that she'd, you know, been prepared for his clearly inevitable death <laughs> and that we had her side of things where she's like oh my god you'll never guess who I married and what he made me put up <laughs> see the thing is but she really seems to love him like, I know I, I know that's the story that he tells her right yeah <laughs> but she does do all this stuff for him and she does she does, like she does um, yeah. and so I feel like you know everybody she must have. She must have. There's definitely. like a plan. I feel like it's a bit like, you know, Marge and Homer. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> it must be. Yeah. Because otherwise like, it wouldn't have been that like, difficult to walk away. Is he a yeah. bit useless? Yes. Do I adore him with all my being? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Aww. laughs> 
Oh, look, she's a great character and it's just so impressive that we have like the epigraphy mm. is the is the thing that gives us yeah. an insight into this kind into her life at all. And this is where thinking about different types of evidence becomes really important because obviously like when we're thinking about written sources it's very much that elite male perspective mm, yeah. and the prioritization of subject matter, it really shows. Yeah. And so this more expansive look at what Rome could be like and what life was like is becomes really important. Yeah. And you, you mentioned Julia Felix before, and she's one of the figures that I really enjoyed reading about. And obviously Pompeii stands out in people's imaginations as well as this sort of landmark site and, the eruption sort of puts a, a whole sort of like, uh, how can I say it without making time it sound capsule? terrible? <laughs> yeah, it kind of puts a... Creates a time capsule, yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible tragedy that after 2,000 years suddenly becomes a historian's blessing. <laughs> mm. uh, we're like, I'm, sorry, I'm really sorry that happened, but also at least something good came out of it. <laughs> yeah, the silver lining, it's the silver lining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, after two millennia, you, you're like, okay, everybody's dead now, I guess, so we can... <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, Pompeii's amazing, but Julia Felix's complex is one of the most amazing things. I think the things that people think of when they think of Pompeii are the theatre and then also the like the big houses the villas which are the story of Rome that we kind of know like the big impressive houses and for a, a while that's what people thought Julia Felix's um complex was when they excavated it they thought it was just a kind of a big weird villa but outside of it there is a inscription which was attached to the wall which uh, said what it actually was. And it says, Julia Felix, daughter of Spurious, offers for rent her leisure complex, which contains shops, baths fitted out for the well-to-do, uh, apartments and gardens for a period of five years in choir within. And all of a sudden, archaeologists could look at it and go, oh, it's a it's a space where people can go to hang out. It's not like a private location because what it is is two was two two houses that have been knocked together um, and she moved a road like you can see where a road was redirected um, so that she could knock some walls through to expand it, which is amazing. Um, and so it's got a hot food bar. Uh, and in the book, I take you on a wee like tour of it so you can see it. But it's got a hot food bar outside, um, which she appears to have added on because um, five years-ish prior to the eruption, there was an earthquake in Pompeii, um, a, like a little warning sign, um, that knocked out most of the original leisure district and meant that people coming from the amphitheater when after games had to go down different roads and one of them was the road that julie Felix's thing was on and so she popped in a hot food bar in order to take advantage of foot traffic <laughs> which is brilliant um so it's got a hot food bar and it's got baths which are very fancy but very like boutique so they're like a little like you can only fit about eight in the toilets you could fit eight people which is small for a roman public toilet <laughs> and uh and then it has this at the entranceway has a really unusual almost unique painting fresco of 
not of mythological characters, not of like garden scenes or of scenes of um, like religious character, but of an everyday scene from Pompey's forum on market day. Um, and has ordinary people doing ordinary things, which is so unusual. And it's got like people buying cloth and a person making shoes and uh, horses with inexplicably enormous penises and uh, <laughs> um, and like children in school and a person giving a penny to a beggar and like all of these just like normal activities of like basically the kind of middle classes of Rome um, and then inside it has these gardens with little fish ponds and little bridges and a little dining room like a tiny little triclinarium uh, where you can recline and dine so so you have the three couches and you can do upper class elite dining where you recline on your arm and then people bring you tiny little things of food and it's got a water feature in the room. And it's basically a, a fancy restaurant for people to go and have a, a fancy meal out for a fancy occasion and then have a walk around a private garden where there will not be a million other people like in the forum <laughs> like I kind of love this where it's like I can't afford my own villa but yeah. what I can afford is I can afford to rent this fancy dining room mm. and we'll have the elite experience exactly. without having to have like a spa you know. day with a lovely yeah. meal at the end <laughs> exactly or you know and it's like I always imagine it as a kind of thing that you would do for like a special occasion so like for my birthday I go to you know a mission starred restaurant for one meal and it's like a big splash out thing where I spend lots of money but I get like this experience or yeah going for a spa day where you um, do not normally have the leisure time to spend an entire day having like just basking in steam but for that one day you can um, and that's basically what it seems that Julia Felix's complex is it is a space where people can uh, go and have the experience of luxury of time of being served of quiet and privacy which is something that is so rare in an urban environment and they can splash out for it when they can pay for it because it's not something like people like Cicero and um the rich guys or like the villa of the silver wedding or whatever they can have that all day every day because privacy and silence and quiet and lush greenery are things that are only available to those who can afford it um but you apparently there was a market for people to be to buy that for one day or buy that for one evening um, and to experience it as a luxury which is and that kind of middle class of rome of the roman empire is so invisible <laughs> um and it's so nice to know that that happened and that there were people who would you know come in for a birthday or for an anniversary or for a you know a special little treat and recline and be fed figs instead of having porridge on the street like they normally do because <laughs> <laughs> you want to eat porridge when you're on the move of course yeah exactly <laughs> you know nor some you know sometimes you're running through the street you get a big bowl of stew and a bit of wine on a quick go but yep. sometimes you want to sit down and take your time uh, she is fascinating because the very fact that she's obviously involved in business and her name as well julia felix it yeah. obviously hints at someone who truly is a self-made person and obviously yeah. obviously does not come from the elite herself 
Yeah. Um, and it's like it says she's a daughter of Spurious. So people have suggested that maybe she's illegitimate or she doesn't know who her father is, but she is a citizen and she you know doesn't mention her husband um and then she has like in the back rooms there's her space where she lives um through a door that is a a tiny little like villa with an office and where she does her work and the office walls are covered in paintings of food and money Uh, (laughs) my favorite things yeah Yeah. (laughs) which for someone who is apparently making her money serving food i think is great (laughs) just really embracing everything about how far she's come and how she's made it yeah exactly (laughs) Um, and then she's got to this point apparently in uh 79 where she's like okay i'm ready to let someone else run this um, and I'm going to rent it out and, you know, I'm still the owner, but I'll make making my money from rents and I'm going to go and maybe she's going to go and live a life of luxury somewhere or maybe she's got a new business that she wants to start. But she's like at that point, she is she's ready to let somebody else do the day to day. I think that's really cool. It's like it, it gives you such an insight into Pompeii and how Roman life is actually working. And I imagine this is not the only place where this kind of thing is happening at all. Yeah, it's just the only one we can definitely identify, like, because mm-hmm. it is the only one that has a sign. <laughs> very clear signage, very handy. Yeah, uh, put more signs on things. people. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on, guys. For history. Yeah. Ideally, just really inscribe them in stone because uh, yeah, yeah. inscribing stuff in stone is the way to make sure that things last. Well, keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, I want to turn your mind now to like a really later period and sort of getting towards the the edges of the Roman world in a different way. And the figure of Zenobia, who is a figure that maybe people have heard of, but maybe don't know much of the story about. But she's also a very intriguing figure in her own right. She is. And she's quite, um, not controversial, but like the interpretation of her is quite contentious, I think. Um, So Zenobia is a woman who is known as a Syrian kind of invader, I think is probably the way that she is often described. If you know any kind of Syrian history, she is a symbol of of Syrian identity um, to a lot of people. And she used to be on Syrian banknotes. And the way that she is often described is as a woman who ran an empire in Syria that is somehow outside of the Roman Empire. And the way that I interpret her is as a woman who did the exact same thing as like every general in the third century did, which is declare herself an Augustus um, and attempted to take over the Roman Empire. (laughs) Because she, to me, is a Roman woman within the Roman Empire who uses an army to attempt to rule the Roman Empire, which makes her more interesting. Um, So she is the wife of a guy uh, called Adanthius, who is a kind of weird liminal figure on the edge of the empire during the third century. So the period when the empire is fragmented and there's about 50 people who claim to be emperor in a 30-year period. And it's kind of militarily and politically chaotic whereby nobody, no emperors don't really seem to last more than 20 minutes. Almost all of them die of being murdered, except for one guy who's hit by lightning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and nobody has the kind of um, 
combined military power and personal power to be able to get more than two legions to follow them and at the time like basically a lot of keeping the borders happy uh keeping them secure is outsourced to people who are big men in their area um and he is one of those guys on the border in syria with the persian empire the parthian empire and the parthian empire at the time is on the rise um and is encroaching on armenia as it always is but is um and this is after Rome is go right the way down into Mesopotamia. So Roman power goes all the way down into Iraq and Iran at this stuff uh, at this time. And so they are charged with basically keeping Mesopotamia as a province um, and Syria. And he is described in a way that is either means that he is a kind of co-emperor or it's just a kind of honorary title and you can argue about it for the rest of your life but there's no real answer to it but he is running roman legions and he is a power down there and he's given consular power and he's very important and they have a son together and then he is murdered by one of his men because he allegedly he uh, he takes away this guy's horse and this guy's so furious about it that he murders him. <laughs> that's it that's the last straw. You cannot have my horse. <laughs> exactly. And so, but what Zenobia does, which is kind of un-Roman, but makes sense, is she goes, okay, um, well, so he had all of these titles and names and we, um, and so now my son has all of those titles and names. And so she just kind of gives her son, who is like eight, all of the titles that her husband had and then starts ruling as his regent. Um, and so she just takes over the role that her husband had, running the armies, being the the face of power in the whole region of Syria and Mesopotamia. She seems to do some military stuff down in Mesopotamia, which we only know because there are some forts that are built down there, um, which have her name on them. So she's doing something. And then at a certain point, she turns around, um, declares herself Augusta, declares her son to be Augustus and invades Egypt. Uh, <laughs> Plot twist. Yeah. Um, and this is the point where everyone's like, oh, hang on. So she destroys a legion um, in Arabia. Then she invades Egypt, goes right the way down to Alexandria and chases out the governor there and sends him on his way, um, kills a bunch of people, and then settles in. And she starts producing coins and she starts producing lots and lots of bureaucracy. Because uh, where the bureaucracy does survive is in Egypt because the papyrus survives really well. Um, yeah. And the climate, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what we have is loads and loads of documents which suddenly start saying, um, oh, in the year of the rain, like year two of the reign of Aurelian and year one of the reign of my son. <laughs> and she basically declares him co-emperor of the Roman Empire, um, which Aurelian, who was now emperor, and he's kind of dealing with stuff with the Goths over in the West, he is less keen on this idea because he's like, hang on, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck is that? Also, what are you doing in the breadbasket of Rome? Or Get can out. you please? Get out now. You are stressing me out in the breadbasket of Rome. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so he pivots very hard away 
and kind of abandons the situation with the Goths and comes charging into Egypt and fights her. As it turns out, um, she picked the wrong person to declare herself co-emperor with because if it had been one of the rubbish ones, like a Claudius Gothicus or something, he probably would have left it. But uh, Aurelian is the least rubbish and is the person, as it turns out, who has the political and military power and the charm and the ability and the kind of profound balance of um being interested in paperwork and being nice to his uh his soldiers to pull the emperor back together under one person so he turns around and blasts into egypt to fight her she withdraws from egypt and is like oh no it's okay maybe i'll just stay um but she's you have still it. Producing- you have that <laughs> yeah, yeah. um <laughs> bye um but she is still producing coins and she's uh, like we have all these coins from syria where she's like it's zenobia on one side and juno on the other and her son on one side jupiter on the other and like they're roman coins and they she's calling them augustus and she calls herself an augusta and she very clearly is wants to be a part like is a roman person being a part of the roman empire um and they have a bunch of battles and eventually she is um defeated in in antioch and she tries to uh allegedly possibly maybe tries to flee on a camel and is caught but which maybe it seems like the kind of story that uh romans in rome would tell about like <laughs> a woman from the east like oh she just got yeah. on a camel you know what they're like um, <laughs> she hopped on a magic carpet and she was out of there <laughs> exactly if it like but um, but it's a good story so and she is captured but aurelian has a bit of Julius Caesar in him so he lets her live and he takes her to Rome and then she lives the rest of her life in Rome and apparently has more children (laughs) mind-blowing I thought for sure she'd end up yeah (laughs) yeah and so she she is very often presented as someone who tries to invade the Roman Empire but to me it is very clear that she is someone who wants to rule the Roman Empire and who is like all these other rubbish guys are doing it like she herself puts down another person who tries to declare himself emperor and his children emperors in syria um and she's like, everybody else is doing it. i don't see why i can't get it's involved. hashtag <laughs> trending guys exactly <laughs> like jumping on that bandwagon and like thinks that she has a real chance and she you know she does she's the only person who ever invades egypt which um is impressive all by itself and so i think she's really interesting both as in the way that we and the way the romans themselves but the way that we talk about romanness like what about her means that we don't call her roman but also the way that we talk about the roman empire and like at particularly at this period like when it is all kind of fragmenting around what gets to still be included in the roman empire and what suddenly gets written off from what from thing because this is happening at the same time that the Gallic Empire secedes and a guy over in Gaul takes Britain bit of Spain and declares it's no longer part of the Roman Empire that he's doing his own thing <laughs> we're independent now yeah you know, it's, it's it's been long enough it's time to go it alone <laughs> exactly and it's like no I want my own little empire uh, <laughs> um, and they did they're doing their own little kind of situation over there and but it seems that Zenobia was going to basically keep going. Like, it'd be fun to see what she had done. Had uh, had she had a rubbish emperor against her rather than uh, Gigachad Aurelian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly there seems like the possibility for it to politically work out, actually. Yeah. If she can hold those regions and the emperor 
in Rome is also like, well, I can't take them back necessarily. Let's make a deal. Then all of a sudden you'd have something very different going on there in terms of what's happening with her career and how it pans out for her son as well. Exactly. Because this is the time when the situation with the Goths is really like a problem. And for a good few decades, the emperors have been tied up just desperately trying to keep the Goths out, even though all the Goths want is to be Roman. Um, and had they been like, all right, they would have resolved that situation immediately. But they, they've they been tied up fighting Goths on the Danube. And so Aurelian is smart enough as a military leader that he um, takes a tactical loss in order to take Egypt under his own personal control again. But had you had a less tactical one who was like, oh no, this is the more kind of threatening thing i need to stay here i can't leave the goths and had let her stay in egypt then you might have a very different there's a novel that somebody could write about that counterfactual (laughs) (laughs) i love it well so far the women that we've talked about are all what we would loosely describe as pagan because of course for the vast majority of rome's history the religion that is followed is made up of many gods etc etc however Right at the end, bit of a plot twist, we have (laughs) Christianity becoming a major religion, if not the religion of the Roman Empire. And that leads us to the final woman that we thought we'd quickly discuss, who is Melania the Elder. Yeah, who is on this kind of cusp. She lives in a world where Christianity wasn't legal than it was. um, And she kind of exemplifies this time when... Roman elite women could be Christian out loud kind of for the first time, but is a woman who does not want to leave behind the benefits of a life as a Roman. Um, So she is one of the first women who can call herself a Roman Christian, basically. So most of the women before that you have to, or most Christians really, before Constantine, you have to choose whether you are a Roman or a Christian. And a lot of, you know, the line that is in all of the um, trial transcripts and lives that we have for Christian martyrs is that they say, no, I am a Christian, Christianusum or Christianusum, um, rather than Romanusum. And you cannot be both. Like, and that is why they are persecuted, because they won't um, sacrifice to the emperor, um, because they're considered to be undermining. And eventually they're like... Constantine caves and is like fine what we've managed to do here is make you stronger (laughs) and so she is one of the first people who can say I'm a Roman Christian and she can exist in the Roman world as an elite woman who owns huge amounts of land like she is she actually descends from Mark Antony's family line and she owns as part of her family enormous swathes of Europe and is taking income from that and she she goes up in Spain and then she moves with her son uh, to Rome after she is widowed um, and this being the ancient world she's like 23 <laughs> and she's widowed she's already lost two children and she goes to Rome where she sets him up as the urban prefect and then spends 10 years living in Rome and um, preparing her son to be the urban prefect. And what you have to do is do the games, like the big games of the year, 
and you have to save up for like a decade to do that. So they declare who the urban prefect is going to be 10 years in advance so that they have time to save up to throw like the games. Olympics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have time to prepare. <laughs> uh, and so she she does that. She spends 10 years living in Rome and then her son comes of age. She becomes the urban prefect. She does the games and then she immediately leaves Rome sells all of her like personal possessions um, and then takes huge amount of money and goes to Egypt because the monastic I'm just gonna say trend <laughs> but like uh, monastic life is kicking off in Egypt at this time this is a fourth century uh, kind of mid late fourth century um, and she goes off to uh, Egypt to go and visit all of the desert mothers and fathers and ingratiates herself in life in Christian Egypt um, and she goes around all of these people and talks to them and like these are people who have walled themselves up into their tombs so that they can live there and people who are like um, it's a it's a great period of, of, of Christian history and of history in the Roman Empire where people were doing deeply odd like exercises of stamina and endurance and um of deprivation like simon stylites is standing on a he's just standing on a pole um, and people come and see him and the more people that come and see him the higher his pole gets but that's what he does he just stands on a pole all day every day and people are going off into the desert and and not masturbating and crying about it a lot and <laughs> uh, uh, there's some great stories about like men like con like thinking about killing themselves because they're just constantly tormented by visions of women and young boys and they <laughs> what a life what a life <laughs> yeah but they're not let such an and and women walling themselves into tombs or like you know these really intense um aesthetic practices and she goes around and visits them all and then kind of decides that she's not that's not the life for her because what she enjoys is the life of a patroness and so she goes to Jerusalem and starts a nunnery and with her friend she opens a uh, they open a kind of nunnery and monastery next to each other where women can come and live um, monastic lives and she dedicates herself to a life of very performative um, aestheticism whereby she sort of uh, refuses to wash and then berates people who do but she, um, uh, but she has a huge amount of money um, which she continues to get because her son is now running all of her estates the family estates and he is sending her money so she is still benefiting from um all of the estates that she previously had and she is pouring all of that money into building up jerusalem as a christian space um and planting christianity all over jerusalem and kind of tamping down the judaism because they uh, after helena they really want Jerusalem to be the home of Christianity and to um, shove out the Jews and she is popular enough there um, and doing a good enough job that they give her a bit of the true cross uh, <laughs> score oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> yeah sweet this sounds very um, much like a case of her being able to have her cake and eat it too <laughs> oh yeah it's very much a case of a woman who chooses to present as poor while not ever being actually poor so she uh, they give her a bit of the true cross and then she goes back to visit her family in rome um one of whom is a, a quite famous bishop in Italy, where she does a lot of marching around triumphantly, basically, but <laughs> in the most poor... So her family, like, go on a visit and 
they they all turn up in like golden carriages wearing purple and red and whatever and she turns up riding a donkey dressed in rags holding a bit of the true cross ah <laughs> oh, nice work don't forget my pious <laughs> and that just like exactly Jesus and you just feel like rolling your eyes so hard like <laughs> Like pretending to be poor is so silly. But anyway, she gives a bit this bit of true cross away. Um, and then she gets into a bunch of fights with St. Jerome, who she hates, and he hates her, which is fair because he's awful. And she is possibly in Rome just before uh the sack of Rome in 410, or she has left. Um, but she inspires her daughter, Melania the Younger, who is potentially the more famous to also become an aesthetic woman and her and her husband decide that they're going to sell all of their land free all of their enslaved people um give away everything and become genuinely poor which melania the elder and her son are appalled by and they write to the emperor (laughs) you've taken it too far yeah exactly no 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 the thing is we pretend to be poor like we're not actually poor Um, we get to turn it on and off it's like a switch exactly like if i need to have a nice bed then i need the nice bed like we don't like and and i would need to use this money to buy influence and power like i don't the, it's not how how else will people take me seriously yeah i need to be purchasing it um Otherwise, because what you have at this time, like um, Jerome's Paula starts her own monastery as well in uh, in in Jerusalem, um, and she is very famous for basically giving over her daughters to Jerome, um, who he then proceeds to starve to death. But she starts her own monastery, in, um, and there they have a very specific hierarchy depending on how much money you bring into the monastery with you. So if you, and what your your social status is outside of the monastery, you there is a, a, a hierarchy within the monastery. And so the trappings of the world outside do not leave you when you go and become a nun you can absolutely go and become a nun and still be a rich nun <laughs> or still be treated as rich and even if you're pretending that you're not but melania the younger is like no 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 i'm going to give it all away that's what jesus said um and they genuinely try to get the emperor to stop her uh, but they can't so she sells off everything frees eight thousand people and then goes off to live a genuinely aesthetic life (laughs) um much to the horror of the rest of her family and then rome is sacked and everything changes um but she she's so fascinating at this point at which christianity has become legal and so romans can trans kind kind of paste the trappings of um of kind of i suppose like secular life onto christianity and can and it stops being a thing that you actually have to die for it and you genuinely have to suffer you can kind of choose to suffer in a way that you can opt out of that <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute performative Christianity I know right Um, but like they still desperately want to suffer because that has become part of Christianity Um, but they don't it's only impressive if you're choosing to suffer like Mm. it's only impressive if you are a rich person who is choosing to wear scratchy rags if you're just a poor person who is wearing scratchy rags because that's all you can afford then that's that's not impressive like no that's just having a shit life (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but being a very rich person who could be wearing silk and who is surrounded by people who are wearing silk, but you're riding a donkey and wearing scratchy things, that everybody's like, oh my God, what a wonderful woman. <laughs> the sacrifice. The exactly. Sacrifice. Um, and all of a sudden, the face of Christianity changes and it becomes something that people can compete over in a way that you couldn't really do before um and you the first inklings of what a what christian uh, roman empire is going to look like start to appear and it's it's fascinating i must admit it's been a while since i looked at this period so i was glad to be reminded that the romans were still unintentionally hilarious <laughs> mostly yeah mostly when they were trying to be really serious even when they became Christian. doesn't make a difference. doesn't matter what religion it doesn't, you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the more serious the Romans try to be, very often the funnier they are. Exactly. And there's a story, like Melania is always surrounded by men who are writing. And so there's a couple of story, like stories that are written about. And there's this great one about her traveling. She's moving a, a new nun from Jerusalem to Egypt. Um, and they're traveling across Egypt and kind of traveling across the deserts as a little group. And one guy who's with them, who's a bishop, they get to their resting place. It's the desert. They're in Egypt. It's hot. Um, and he washes his hands and face. And Melania loses her mind and like berates him. Um, it's like, I never wash my face. And I have never lain on anything softer than the hard ground. And even though I'm in my 60s, you will never see me do anything so decadent as to wash my hands. Even though doctors say that I might actually be less ill if I did, I still <laughs> will never... <laughs> And you're like, oh my God, wash women. But yes, yeah, so she just loves to be grubby and <laughs> just so that she can one-up people. Well, you know, I actually made her a bit of my own patron saint when I went to school camp and could not wash for several days. So... <laughs> <laughs> See, this incidentally is why I never became an archaeologist because I um, I could never deal with the grubby hands. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of those amazing stories. People definitely need to go out and grab your book because it is filled with so many more. So can you please tell us where can people buy the book and where can people find you? So you can you can buy the book, hopefully, in any good bookshop. You, so it's called A History of the Roman Empire and 21 Women. And it yeah should be hopefully available anywhere. You can go to my website, which is emmasouthern.com. Then there are links to places that you can buy it there. You can also find me at History is Sexy, which is historyissexy.com. Um, as long as your uh, adult filters don't filter out the name, because apparently they sometimes do. Um, but you can find it on all good podcast um, feeds. And we answer questions that people don't want to spend two days researching themselves. So, <laughs> um, And you can ask us questions there. And yeah, I think that's all the places. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at Nuclear Teeth, where I put links to things when I remember. And you can also see many, many, many pictures of my cat. oh look thank you so much for spending this time with us we really appreciate it and reading this book has been a real thrill and pleasure and we can only imagine that people listening to this episode will feel the energy and the vibrancy of the women coming through in this conversation because the whole book is like this it's full (laughs) of great stuff as a final question would you have any hints about what's to come in your writing world? 
the next book that I am currently writing is uh, actually a children's book with uh, Greg Jenner, who used to be uh, the historical consultant for Horrible Histories and now does the You're Dead to Me podcast on the BBC. And we are writing a children's book about Roman Britain, which is an introduction to historiography for kids. Oh, fantastic. That sounds really, <laughs> really exciting. That sounds like another winner. Well, we, as I say, we cannot thank you enough for coming back, 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 back again which only you you will find funny (laughs) Um, and we hope very much to be able to chat to you when that next one comes out thank you i'm always here to chat to you